Welcome to Biopics Mostly Suck, the podcast where we provide the true story behind movies based on a true story. Today, we're going to talk about the movie Dog Day Afternoon, a movie about a bank robbery that went very, very badly on a hot August afternoon in Brooklyn. If you know nothing else about the film, then you know the scene where Al Pacino is pacing on the sidewalk yelling, Attica! Attica! But what does that mean? And what does this film have to do with the gay liberation movement? And what are the parallels between then and now about how law enforcement conduct themselves? And where does the mafia fit into all of this? I'm going to discuss all of that with my guest today. John Helix, my frequent collaborator, is a local musician in the San Diego area. Find him on Facebook and Twitter at John Helix Official. Our good friend Don, who grew up in New York and comes from a social justice mindset, will also join us to talk about the film. Dog Day Afternoon gets an 8 out of 10 rating from the Internet Movie Database, a 96% fresh rating from Rotten Tomatoes, and an 86% rating from Metacritic. How is Dog Day Afternoon as a movie? And how is it as a means to present a story about a man robbing a bank for the love of another man? We'll talk about it all on this episode. If you're ready, let's get started. If not, just hit pause. We'll still be here. Everyone good? Checkity check, 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 check. Check. Checkity check. Yep. Checkity check, check. Little... Lately, I've been thinking oh. <laughs> how much I miss my lady. Ah, uh, Marina is a beautiful song. Yeah. yeah. You know, I I did not discover that song until I watched Dog Day Afternoon. Oh, that was your way into it. That okay. was my way into Amarina. Yeah. And, and it was one of the things, I know I've described it with a few other things we've talked about on this podcast, but where has this song been? Yeah, well, where has Tumbleweed Connection been in everyone's mm-hmm. life? That's a that's the pre-really poppy successful era, though. He was super famous in England, and that was the singer-songwriter quiet era. It was Honky Chateau, and then with uh, Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road, it just yeah. went completely poppy, which I love all those songs, too. But Amarino, I just think it doesn't fit into people's narrative about Elton John. Yeah. I mean, he's doing a su- like Southern blues yeah. rock. It's, it's not Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road. No, it's not, but it's a beautiful song. Oh, it's a great song, and that's a great album. And does he say puppy child in that? Yeah. yeah. What is puppy child? I don't think I want to talk about it, but I mean... No, I mean, do you know what it is? What? Well, what else would a puppy child be? I don't know. What am I missing here? Sweet young thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, that, that makes sense. Follows you around. Okay. Yeah. Okay, but you you know what I'm always amazed with with Elton? How the fuck did they get away with Island Girl? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. How in the world? I mean, there's there's some okay, there's some stuff with okay, the Stones, Brown Sugar. How in for fuck's sake? That's like 1976. How did they or 75 Rock of the Westies? How did they get away with no 76? Oh my God, the lyrics to that song uh-huh. are just degrading. Yeah. Well, it was a different time, John. Oh, okay. shit. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, Island Girl. Island Girl. Well, Holy. But, you know, I think it raises an interesting question, which is because 
we now have a population who wasn't in tune with these things who is becoming in tune to them. Yeah. Since since the murder of George Floyd. Mm-hmm. Is that going to change what a broader spectrum of the population feels is important? For instance, if a song like Island Girl were released today, would you have people saying this is wrong? I think definitely yes, if they... And those lyrics are hard to ignore, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I went back recently and uh, listened to the Genesis album that has Illegal Alien, Mm. first cut from Mm -hmm. the second side. And uh, and then I watched the video again, and holy fuck, dude. It was, you know, back when it came out, okay, it's funny, it's quirky, but no one took offense to it. And now it's disgusting to watch. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how uh, if the ethos stays the same in terms of our our ability to to be outraged at you know racial stereotypes and yeah. gender stereotypes. I wonder how long that will. I wonder how long it's going to take before it contracts again. I think there's this battle right now, and the people who don't want to see gender equality or racial ethnic equality are using the false cudgel of Oh, it's political correctness. Because when I was a kid, for as an example, yeah, I would take people to task for enjoying certain Stone songs, <laughs> songs like "Under My Thumb." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and you know, ah, uh, you know, it's just a song. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's just you know, it's it, their stuff is so. Yes, a lot of their stuff is fantastic. I love the Stones, but that is some fucked up shit and it was on the air in heavy rotation when we were in junior high school it was out there all the time what a fucking message that one is right but if it if it came out now then there would be people railing against that very idea and then there would people be with the oh you know fucking feminazis Mm -hmm. they complain about everything it's just a song this is political correctness gone rampant it's gone wild you know and i think it's going to get harder and harder it's going to become everyone's going to become more entrenched and shit's just going to blow up it's just so funny but you know what there's also more of an institutional change taking place where more people who weren't usually included are being included and gaining power. Tyler Perry is a great mm-hmm. example. The show Blackish, which has two spinoffs now, is another good example. Yeah. And I and the Academy Awards is making institutional changes as well. So I think with those institutional changes in entertainment, that's going to affect as well who has a voice, who's doing the writing. There's more of a conscious effort among showrunners to make a more diverse uh, writer's room than you typically would have had. And I I think those are the things that are going to help to bring about the changes in presentation and also perception on what should be put out there and what should not be put out there. And I think that's an interesting way to get into talking about Dog Day Afternoon because whenever you hear about Dog Day Afternoon, it's about a bank robbery or there's the clip of Al Pacino yelling Attica, Attica, which like... Like Norma Ray with the union sign, it's one of those things that's shown 
every Academy Awards without any context. But uh, a discussion we're going to have here soon regarding Dog Day Afternoon is I really want to talk about the LGBT presentation Mm -hmm. in 1975. That's only six years from Stonewall Mm -hmm. on when this is being talked about. So, but but we'll get into that because I think there's there's a a lot of interesting aspects of how it was presented at the time that that I'm quite fascinated about. But Dog Day Afternoon, this was your first time seeing it, right? I th- I may have seen it when I was a kid because a lot of a lot of parts felt really familiar, but it, that also might have been just clips I've seen throughout the years. So, but it was my yeah, it was my first full watch through. Yeah. And Don, being of a political mind as a child growing up in New York, you saw this when you were five, right? <laughs> well, it didn't come out till I was six. <laughs> But but you said I, but you said know. mom I want to go see that and your mom said no there's this Disney film and you said no I want to go see the bank robbery film no my mom probably would have taken me uh, I, I don't your remember. uncle Jerry would have my uncle Jerry would have okay. um, I can't remember I, I know I saw it sometime in my childhood but I couldn't tell you when I don't I'm sure I didn't see it in the theaters yeah I, I saw it a few years ago was my first time because it's always been one of those things that's you know like i mentioned yeah. is out there and referenced but y- you're never really told what it is yeah the amount of times i've heard attica screamed yeah can't count you know no in, in any context <laughs> just people yeah attica! Wait, wait, what are you talking about attica but right. they don't know but what attica. About, i don't know attica attica state they know Pacino screamed it, and that's all yeah, they know. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a good form of protest. And what we're talking about here is we're talking about Dog Day Afternoon, which is based on the true story of a 1972 bank robbery that went wrong in, oh, so many ways on an August afternoon in Brooklyn, New York. The first time robbers in the film are Sonny Wartzik, played by Al Pacino, Salvatore Sal Natural, played by John Cazal, or is it naturale? Is that the proper pronunciation? Well, I don't know. Italian naturale. How's it spelled? I'm not Italian. Is it Italian or French? Uh, it- Italian. N a t u r a l e. Naturale. Naturale. And Stevie, who is never even given a last name in the film, because <laughs> as the robbery starts, Stevie leaves. Yeah, he's gone. <laughs> Well, you know, you got you got to admire someone who recognizes he's in over his head, right? That he can't do this. <laughs> and, and, I'm stepping away <laughs> and says so before he goes under, right? Yeah. <laughs> Stevie was probably the smartest one in the group. Yeah. And Stevie loses his nerve as soon as the robbery begins and he runs away. In the course of the robbery, Sonny discovers that the bank only had eleven hundred dollars of cash in hand <laughs> and how much was he hoping for uh he was hoping for fifty thousand oh. fifty to a hundred thousand that would be less than that, that would be much less <laughs> so sonny takes the the traveler's checks and he burns the register in the trash can the smoke is seen from outside the bank and raises suspicion <laughs> sorry that's okay Pretty soon, the building is surrounded by police, and the robbers panic and take the bank employees hostage. Police Detective Sergeant Eugene Moretti, played brilliantly by Charles Durning. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, I I love his first words in the film are, What are you doing? (laughs) 
And then the shot from Sonny's point of view looking directly across the street yeah. at the barber shop, and there's Moretti on the phone. It's like, you're surrounded. You're not going anywhere. And the amount of firepower that came from oh the- Holy God. shit! <laughs> It's like a war or a battle. <laughs> and Sonny then claims that he will kill the hostages. The security guard has an asthma attack and is released to show good faith to the authorities. And that's a scene we were talking about, uh, you know, current times and perspective and how things are viewed. I watched this film again a couple weeks ago just to get ready for the discussion and it really, really caught me when the security guard comes out suffering from asthma and the first response of the police is to grab him, handcuff him, and throw him over the back of the car. Mm-hmm. And that hit me in a way now that it had not hit me before. Interesting, yeah. Moretti convinces Sonny to step outside to talk to him, which escalates to Sonny bringing the crowd to his side by chanting, <laughs> Attica! <laughs> So, did we, did we, did we, did we uh... I think this is a good place to stop and talk about what Attica is since you only see it on that clip during the Academy Awards. And, and this film was very topical in what it was presenting. The film came out in 75 about a robbery that happened in 72. The Attica prison riots took place on September 9th, 1971. And during the 1960, now there's some lead up that comes into what happens at Attica. Because during the 1960s, Supreme Court rulings provided greater rights for state inmates. In 1962, with the case of Jones v. Cunningham, the Supreme Court ruled that prisoners could file a court order of habeas corpus and challenge the legality of their sentencing and the conditions of their imprisonment. This ruling opened the door for Cooper v. Pat, which said that prisoners had the right to protection under the Civil Rights Act of 1871. The ruling opened the floodgates for prisoners to air their grievances about the condition of imprisonment. So these court rulings set the stage for what happens in Attica in 1971. As the lawsuits grew in number, American citizens started to pay attention to prisoner rights. The attention grew further with the Attica prison riot when 2,200 inmates seized control of the prison to demand better living conditions and in response to the fatal shooting of a black radical activist inmate at San Quentin. After four days of negotiations, the governor of New York gave the order for the National Guard, prison guards, and police to storm the facility. 39 men, inmates and staff, were killed in the skirmish. By leading the chant of Attica, Attica, Sonny brings the crowd to his side by touching on a raw nerve the American public has had about abusive authority in law enforcement. Was that a problem here? Abusive authority? No, they took care of all of that. (laughs) This is a post, uh, it's a post-racial and post, we're we're living in the, the, all that stuff is... Yeah. We took care of that in like the 90s, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Every, everything's fine. We don't have a problem with abusive law enforcement in today's world. Yeah. So, yeah. Same problems that exist now existed then. And that's the context of Sonny yelling, Attica, Attica, because the character in the film knows that he's going to be able to bring the crowd to his side when he's faced with the number of police officers out in the street. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it's important to to talk about for people who are not familiar with the process of gentrification in New York, especially in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. is that those were all rough areas. The people he was trying to incite mm-hmm. were not well-meaning gentrifiers who suburbanized you mean they Brooklyn. These were people who were fucking pissed. These these were the people that the police would be going after. Mm-hmm. So it was designer clothes and yeah. uh, sipping on double espressos yeah. and in coffee shops and shit. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. He's talking to the people. He's yeah. talking to the people. So it, it's it's a it's a different dynamic than people might imagine right now. Sonny demands a vehicle to drive himself and Sal to the airport so they can board a jet, as well as pizzas for the people in the bank. Because mm, demands for a jet always go well. Well, he yeah. wanted a helicopter too, right? Uh, <laughs> Give me a to helicopter get, to, get to, to get to the get airport. To the, yeah. Instead, they got a, a bus limousine. Yeah. <laughs> Sonny's girlfriend, Leon, arrives and tells Moretti that the robbery is to pay for her gender reassignment surgery. She also talks about Sonny's other wife, Angie, and his two children. The ordeal continues. The FBI take charge of the situation and the lights in the bank are shut off, along with the air conditioning, in August, in Brooklyn. When Mulvaney, the bank manager, goes into diabetic shock, Sonny agrees that he can leave. Mulvaney decides to stay. The FBI provides a limousine to take Sonny, Sal, and their hostages to the airport, where they plan to board a plane and fly out of the country. At the airport, as the car waits on the tarmac, another hostage is released. Sal is shot dead by Murphy, the agent who drove the limousine, and Sonny is arrested. Great, great film here. And it's uh, very straightforward in its presentation of about 12 hours of a situation. Mm-hmm. Don, your thoughts on Dog Day Afternoon? Um, I think they did a really solid job using farce to put forth the general feeling of the situation without making it a mockery or parody of the people involved. For example, the conversations between the head teller and Sonny when she's saying, you didn't have a plan? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She's she's almost like the lady in the neighborhood that knows your mom Uh back in the day when that was a thing. Yeah. Seriously? Come on, man. You had nothing going on. But then she stays mm-hmm. when she had the chance to slip out. Yeah. It's so interesting. But it, and that feels farcical. You've got these these armed men and there's this lady chastising them for their lack of preparation. It's just it's great. Would you compare it in a way to the tone of I Tanya? Uh I, Tanya, took it to a little bit more of an extreme. It's different because it was, you know, the fourth wall being broken. I don't know. It's just different. I don't think it was comparable. I think there were some similar techniques, but I don't think they're comparable. In the end, you have people who went through a traumatic situation. Absolutely. And I do think that was presented to a certain extent. And I think that the different tellers reflect the the different ability of people in the moment to handle that sort of situation. You know, one woman's just completely breaking down and sobbing. Another one's on the phone trying to have a conversation with her husband without panicking because she's young and newly married. And she's, Carol trying, to, she's trying to figure out dinner for him, right? To to bring some sort of sense of normalcy. And then there's a head teller who's just 
all right, we're going to take care of this the way we need to mm-hmm. take care of it. There are these things that are going to have to happen, and we're going to figure out in a way to get everyone out of here alive. Yep. It also feels like, though, if this, I, I mean, we're thinking of this Brooklyn in the 70s. Mm-hmm. It, it seems like a very different film if this was shot in like Los Angeles in, in the 70s. Oh, or if, yeah. if, there, if the events took place, I'm sorry, in in L.A. or, you know, something in, this, in the 70s. Yeah. I think that that contributes to the lack of farce. It felt real to me when she's going, come on, you don't got a plan? It's like, oh, I, I'm just thinking like, how did, how, how did New Yorkers respond to trauma in the 70s? Probably like that. Violence mm-hmm. and snark, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, mean I was very young. When well, this... even today. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I was very young when he actually held up the bank. I was three or four when he held up the bank. But yeah, I mean, that that was certainly the general tone I remember. You know, you can't remember specifics at that age, but you have that sort of general sensory memory of how things felt. Yeah. I mean, there was just shit going down all the time everywhere. And you just, you can't back down. You can't shirk it. You can't pretend it's not happening. You figure out what you're going to do. One thing I was looking forward to talk about today is the presentation of LGBT in this film, Mm. because we've Mm. talked previously, Bohemian Rhapsody, Rocket Man, for instance, uh, on presentation of LGBT. And and I was very surprised to see the presentation in 1975, is that I felt it was very respectful and it treated them as people first. Because this, this movie is never talked about as the gay guy robs a bank and you don't find out Al Pacino's sexual orientation until an hour into the movie. So as a viewer, you're already to real, you've, you've been relating to him as a person Mm -hmm. who has put himself in this situation. Well, and I think part of that is to bring you along in the storyline because the Mm -hmm. people who are there, the, the crowd outside, the police officers who are responding, that's all they know. Mm -hmm. So you're essentially following the story, how they're following it. Yeah. There's a bank robbery going on. Oh, they're armed. Okay, now there's hostages. Okay, now they're making demands. Oh, now it's now we're finding out why these knotheads without a plan are holding yeah. up the bank. And, and I thought Chris Sarandon's portrayal of Leon was just beautifully nuanced. There, there's some out there who complain because of his effeminate characteristics. It's it edges into parody in a way. I don't oh. think so. Mm, I I did. You really? did. Why did you think so? I don't know. It just had a general feel of, of parody of of over the top of this. Mm. But he also just seemed very fragile. And that's the thing, is as, as a human, I've known people in real life with those qualities as well, and I, I didn't see it as parody. I I thought. He he's a guy who, as is presented in the film, has been through quite a bit. Has mm-hmm. his her own issues mm-hmm. going on, and I thought he played it very very well. It seems like Pacino too sets up a really difficult, um, or a really stark just Pacino as a as an actor, mm-hmm. but then the, the characters that he's known for and the type of roles that he's they're so hyper masculine yes right and so i think that that sets up such a contrast between those characters and the dynamic and i think maybe people are go into that film i think that adds to you know seeing them as people first is that you're seeing pacino on the screen mm-hmm. for an hour 
yelling and screaming and like, what the fuck the, you know and yeah. you know all of those traditionally masculine qualities um i think really add to that but yeah i don't know i have to think about that about if it's far it, it didn't seem farcical when i watched it and i think the other thing is in the movie it's never treated as a turn or a aha or a we have this for you right there's this change it just is and it's the frankness of the presentation that I felt was very progressive, especially for that time. Much more progressive than I think even more recent depictions of LGBT have been. So, uh, so well, now we have cultural narratives that are that are just yeah. utter stereotypes that are, even if as well intentioned as they are, they're just mm-hmm. ridiculous. Yeah. Some notes on the production here. This movie has no music score. There's no soundtrack. <laughs> there's there's no music to give you emotion. And the word for the day, boys and girls, is diegetic. Uh-huh. All of the music is diegetic, meaning that it comes from the environment within the film and the music is heard by the characters. And Marina, good example, because once that camera uh-huh. gets to the car at the bank, the song that's playing is Amarina. The movie takes place in the summer. But it was filmed during a particularly chilly fall in New York. In fact, it was so cold during filming, the actors could see their breath. But I'm trying to recall any instance where we saw breath on film. There's a way they fix that. Uh huh. And today it would be CGI. Today they would just take all that breath Is out. Ice cubes? They would have the actors suck on ice cubes before a take. Same thing in Sideways. You know, Sideways was filmed in cold, super cold. They used ice cubes they as well. They used ice cubes, yep. Too. All right recreate the lush central coast and its vineyards there's some really interesting connections between the film and the real world when the story of this bank robbery was first reported the press described the lead bank robber as having the looks of al pacino or dustin hoffman Ah. in fact al pacino Mm -hmm. declined the role due to exhaustion after godfather 2 Pacino is a very method acting kind of guy and just didn't feel he had it within him to whip himself to where he needed to be for each take. So the director said, okay, well, we're going to offer it to Dustin Hoffman. And then Al Pacino reconsidered. (laughs) (laughs) Appeal to your sense of competition and ego. Oh, man. And the bank robbers in real life They went to a movie theater to kind of get themselves pumped up for the robbery. And the movie they went to see was The Godfather, which stars Al Pacino. Uh, The movie was filmed on a block in Brooklyn, just four miles away from where the real events took place. The The locations that were used in the film appear as they do in the film. Typically, they'd film anything inside in a studio and exteriors would be on location. But for this, they took a warehouse that was on the block, turned it into a bank. The location of the barbershop is really across the street, and they used that street and that block Hmm. in order to film the movie. In fact, they had offered for people who live in the area to go stay in a hotel, but most of the people decided to stay. And when you see those. Were they the crowd? When you see people hanging out their windows, Uh those are people who really live there on that block. But. There were 300 extras who were hired. There are many more than that in the film. And that's because locals wanted to be a part of it. And their stories of the hired extras 
professionally coaching the local people <laughs> on how to be an extra in a film, and they got many more extras than they had to pay for. Uh, back on the LGBT presentation, uh, I want to talk a little bit more about that because I became curious about where Dog Day Afternoon fell in a ranking of best LGBT films. Since it's not normally called out as that, I did a Google search, and these are the publications that came up that had lists of best LGBT films. Rolling Stone, I would expect Rolling Stone would have a list like that. Cosmopolitan, L, Harper's Bazaar, Good Housekeeping. (laughs) Thought that was a little odd as well. These publications, while they listed gay films, did not have Dog Day Afternoon anywhere in there. So I thought, what if I go for film for magazines that cater to an LGBT audience, such as Slant, Time Out, or Gaiety, and it didn't appear on any of their lists either? Did they appear on a worst list? They did not have a worst list. Hmm. However, it did appear on two lists, Rotten Tomatoes, number 37 under the 200 Best Gay Films, and number 29 on Esquire's Top 30 list. So for Rotten Tomatoes, was that from input from the general public, or was that from professional movie reviewers, or from tastemakers within the LGBT community? Did it indicate? I'm, I'm not sure how they built the list. Hmm. No. But but I was just looking to see where it appeared because we were talking about the presentation of LGBT and I was really surprised that it's not seen as a gay film, which it's never promoted as, which I mentioned. Because it's not. It's a heist. It's a heist movie. Exactly. But there's also some political elements that are going to come into play, which may have something to do with why it's not seen as a gay film as well. But I do want to mention here from real life, because the Village Voice had an interesting take on the LGBT aspect of the real event. And in August 31st, 1972, the Village Voice wrote, quote, obviously the whole reverse macho trip was part of the street excitement. Homosexuals are supposed to be victims. And here's a tough guy, John Dillinger, Victor. Instead of demanding his lady in red, he was asking for his transvestite in pajamas. So even from the real world aspects, it was being viewed as something that was counter to how LGBT are usually portrayed. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That's something to chew on. Yeah. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. But first, I want to get a score of the movie out of four stars. Oh, four stars. Four stars from Don. Four stars from John. Four stars from me. Incredible film. Great roles. Great actors. Start to finish. Oh, Carol Kane in it is great. The head bank teller you mentioned, which, Mm -hmm. by the way, in real life, she was a surrogate mother to Al Pacino. When he, wait, wait, in real life, do you mean the real bank teller or do you mean the actress, the actress in real life? The actress in the film with Al Pacino, which when I went back and watched the film again, knowing that and watching their interactions, it's interesting to think that when he was starting out, he stayed with her and her husband for a few months. Aw. Mm-hmm. Wow. So here he is doing his job as an actor, having to be mean to her. And I was looking... 
for anything that was a tell in Pacino doing this, knowing that history. And I don't see anything in him doing that. He's just so in the character. They're actors. They're actors. And she knows it. They're doing their job. And that to me, that's an extra level to say how incredible the acting is in the film. Once you know that real-life relationship. And you can't see any hint of it. He doesn't soften in any way. All right, well, we're going to move on now to talk about the facts. And in this portion of the podcast, we're going to talk about how the facts were presented in the film. At the end, we're going to rank the accuracy on a letter grade on the historical elements. So let's get started. Let's talk first about the lead character, played by Al Pacino, Sonny Wojcic. In the movie, what is known about Sonny is that he's with two other men just prior to robbing the bank. Through the film, we find out that he served in Vietnam. He married a woman, Angela Wartzik, and has two children and considers himself to be married to Leon, a transsexual he refers to as his wife, who is in the mental hospital. He is robbing the bank in order to fund Leon's sex reassignment surgery. What happened in real life? Well, the gentleman at the center of this, his name was John Wolchowitz, and he was born to a Polish father an Italian-American mother. He served in Vietnam, where he had his first gay relationships. He married Carmen Bifolco in 1967. They were separated by 1969, and they had two children. John became involved in the cause of gay liberation and worked with the Gay Activist Alliance in New York, who referred to themselves as a militant and peaceful organization. A militant, peaceful organization. A militant, peaceful organization. In fact, there's a, there's a documentary, which a lot of information will come from in the discussion here, called The Dog. And The Dog is the nickname John Wodowitz took on when he was in prison because the other prisoners couldn't say Wodowitz. So he was known as The Dog. And the GAA did things such as storm the registrar's office for marriage certificates in New York or marriage licenses, and they would just take over the office and start answering the phones and saying, oh, I'm sorry, are they gay? No, they can't get married. <laughs> and hang That's up the phone. That's fantastic. I love it. Uh, so with the GAA, John became known by the nickname of Little John Basso, Basso being his mother's maiden name, and Little John as a nickname because he had a small penis. It's an interesting tidbit to hang your moniker on so yeah. to speak or not in 1971 john met ernest aaron uh, leon in the film at the feast of san Gennaro. she later took the name of elizabeth eden and that's the name we're going to refer to her as for the remainder of the podcast two months later john and liz had a public wedding ceremony in a church officiated by a priest Four months later, in April of 1972, they separated because Liz wanted a sex change operation, and John didn't want her to go through with it. Additionally, neither one of them had the money for the operation, and the frustration of not being able to become the gender with which she identified led to a couple of suicide attempts by Liz, which led to her being placed in the mental institution. So mm -hmm. this is where we get a convergence into the film and sure. why she was there. Well, just the fact that they called it a sex change operation and not gender conforming. Well, terms it, have changed since 75. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that tells you a lot, the weight and the moral context but that I, they put behind it. Or that the fact that they call it a mental hospital and not yeah. a psychiatric unit. 
I think also the the references to pronouns and mm-hmm. how people prefer to be referred to mm-hmm. after they've made some type of transition has also changed. Yeah, I think it makes it an interesting time capsule to be able to mm-hmm. look at it. So let's go ahead and talk about the robbery. The robbery itself. What was in the movie? We've already talked about the robbery as it was depicted in the movie. So let's go ahead and jump into how the robbery came to be and what really happened. Following Liz being committed to the mental hospital in April of 1972, John started to meet people at a local gay bar in order to find people with whom he could rob a bank and take Liz out of the hospital by force. Wodowitz had initially said that a bank executive from Chase Manhattan Bank had suggested that they go and rob the bank. So he recruited Bobby Westenberg and offered to pay him $50,000 to take care of a bad lung. Salvatore Sal uh, Neutrale, a.k.a. Donald Masterson, was an escaped fugitive from New Jersey. His share of the money was going to be used to finance his two sisters' removal from foster care and separate them from their mother who drank and ignored the needs of the children. Neutrality was the only member of the gang who had a criminal record. The night before the robbery, the three robbers stayed in a motel. On the day of the robbery, they went to see the movie The Godfather in order to get pumped up for the robbery. The Chase Manhattan Bank they robbed was not their first target on that day. They surveyed several banks before settling on the bank at the corner of Avenue P and 3rd Street. At one bank, they hit a car. (laughs) Jesus. At another bank, they walked in and a friend of Bobby's mother recognized him and said, Hi, Bobby! Oh, my God. God. When they finally reached the Chase Manhattan Bank at about 3 in the afternoon on August the 22nd, they waited for the last customer to leave the bank before they entered. Bobby's job was to walk up to the teller and hand her a note, which read, We are going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Oh. My. God. Like in the movie, Bobby got scared and fled, which is when the plan (laughs) started to go sideways. The movie leaves the reason the cops arrive open to interpretation. Was it the smoke? Is it because someone called? It never really gets specific. But it does lean towards the smoke coming out of the vent as the reason. In real life, the bank manager, Robert Barrett, received a phone call from Joe Antero, a staff member from personnel who requested a bank teller to be transferred to another branch and asked for a name. Barrett gave the name of an employee who had recently been terminated for theft. Antero replied by asking Barrett if he was in trouble, to which Barrett answered, yep, and hung up the phone. And Tarot contacted the authorities about a possible bank robbery at the branch. And we, pretty clever. Not bad. If you're talking to that's quick thinking. The head of personnel is going to know who's been terminated for theft, and you just give them a name, and yeah, there you go. Good work. What you see in the movie is pretty much how it happened. One thing that was left out of the movie was that John's male mistress, in addition to Carmen and Liz, believed that. Another reason John was robbing the bank was to get money to run away with him. He was allowed to go to the door of the bank where he and John shared a passionate kiss. In the movie, John takes control of the situation from the police when he starts chanting Attica, Attica. In the documentary The Dog, Wojewicz says that this exchange happens. 
And this is John Woodowitz speaking here. He says, this asshole is standing out there with the bullhorn and he says, all right, you faggots, we're going to come in there and get you. I said, what did he say? I said, you call me a faggot one more time, I'm going to kick your fucking ass. And if you think you're so fucking bad, why don't you put down the gun and come over here and call me a faggot because I'll fuck you up. John said the other cops started laughing because they knew he wasn't going to do anything. And that's when I knew I was the man. I think that's a very broad interpretation of that situation. <laughs> the man. <laughs> the man. Or the police had a job to do and going and getting into a fisticuffs <laughs> with one of the bank robbers did not fall into that category. Uh-huh. Well, this is his... He thinks a lot of himself. He does, and it's, it's really interesting because he... Um... He seems to thrive off of the notoriety of what he did mm. to the point where he would frequently wear a custom-made T-shirt that said, I robbed this bank. And he would go to the bank and he would sign autographs and pose for pictures with people. He, he does remember that he was arrested, tried, convicted, and imprisoned for that. Yes. Okay. And after that, he lived on welfare. He couldn't find employment. In fact, he tried to get a job as a security guard at the same bank that he robbed, which on one hand seems to make sense. Who would know better than the guy who robbed the bank? Yeah, but he's from not... His yeah. From his perspective. That's what yeah. I'm saying. From his perspective. Yeah. And he put down as a reference, Dog Day Afternoon. <laughs> oh. Okay. Oh, he, wow. Uh, I recommend this documentary because it, it's some interesting stuff. In fact, his mother, his mother being depicted in the film is crying in the street, trying to plead with him blaming what's happening on his uh, on his first wife his mother was not like that at all um his mother was pretty matter of fact without john knowing she followed him into the village of new york when he would go trolling for men so she knew he was gay she was present at his wedding to liz she was he went trolling for men mm mm-hmm. Yeah. Were those his words? That's how he describes it, yeah. Wow. Zipper down. Uh, this is a guy, yeah. yeah, this is a guy who just went down on everything basically. So but uh but imagine being someone's mother mm-hmm. and you're gonna follow them into that environment you're not familiar with and mm-hmm. see what your son is doing. So so she was definitely not the crying mother in the streets. She was at the bank robbery, she was in the crowd. And she said it was difficult to watch everything that was happening, but she certainly didn't talk to him in the street at all. Mm. During the course of the robbery, John really did have close conversations with the authorities on the street during the standoff, and the robbery did become some type of absurd theater in the Flatbush area of Brooklyn. In the movie, he is seen as getting the cops to holster or drop their weapons. In real life, once he realized he could make them do that, he went further and asked them to drop to the ground. Shit. Hey, this is a guy who was taking advantage of his situation. Yeah. I, I don't know if he really thought he was going to be flying out of there on a plane, but he was making the most of it while he could. He probably thought he could. 
He probably did. I don't think anyone else yeah. <laughs> believed that was going to come to fruition. But I'm I'm guessing it was bouncing around in the transom of his mind that it, <laughs> that this was going to actually happen. Now, there's another possible reason for this robbery taking place, and that are those would be mob connections. According to Arthur Bell, a writer for the Village Voice at the time of the robbery, and a person who know Wodowitz from the Gay Activist Alliance. He said that there were people who felt John was not smart enough to plan a bank robbery. Bell says that Wodowitz's male mistress states that there were two inmates who said that the Gambino crime family was behind the holdup and the deal was they would take 50% of the take. The support for this theory is that all the gay bars were run by the mob at the time. Mostly the Gambino family, including the famous Stonewall Inn. Wojewicz got at least one of his guns for the robbery from Mike Umbers, who has been a longtime member of the gay bar, prostitution, and pornography scene in New York. This information has been corroborated by Gary Badger, a bartender at Danny's Bar, and a friend of Sao Naturale. Following the robbery, he was seeking donations to Barry Naturale. I'll let this last paragraph of Bell's article wrap up this section. He said, here's how it stands. This Tuesday morning, August 29th, Mike Umbers, the gay catalyst, is roaming the streets somewhere or sitting tight, his heart in his mouth. A 19-year-old kid is dead, his body on ice, about to be removed to Potter's Field. Little John is under federal custody. Several dozen people are stuck with sewer hole memories in their heads. Organized crime, like the March of Time, marches on. Homosexuals continue to frequent bars run by the Gambinos, since there are few alternatives. Ironically, the Stonewall, the bar that precipitated the first gay riot and the beginning of the gay liberation movement, was a Gambino operation. And members of the gay liberation movement, including yours truly, are having a hell of a time figuring out how the whole Little John thing relates to gay liberation. And it does. And what we can do about it, if anything. And I think that's an interesting thing to tie into why Dog Day Afternoon is maybe not perceived as a gay film because you do have these connotations coming into play with the mob and the history of the mob with LGBT in New York and what the end result is is that this is not someone who the gay community may want to put out there on a gay film list, regardless of what the facts were. But the fact is that Stonewall riots took place in 69. This robbery took place in 72. And what was out on the streets in New York was every bit about gay activism and gay liberation as it was about... Attica as it was about anything else that was in the air at the time. Sure, I wouldn't want to claim it was a pole. <laughs> what a fucking dunce. Who wants to align with this guy? What a numb nut. Give me a break. Get the fuck out of here. Of course no one wants to align with him. <laughs> John, you seem to be digesting. I'm just... This guy's megalomania is uh-huh. just beyond, this is off the charts. This yeah. is, but hey, it, 
He ran with it, right? <laughs> well, he, he ran it into the ground. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In the end, Liz did get her surgery, but it was funded by $7,500 that Wodowitz received from the movie studio. So, hey, kudos, he came through on his promise. Irony, but yeah, sure. Liz died in 1987 from mm. AIDS-related pneumonia. Wodowitz died in 2006 from skin cancer. It's interesting because that documentary, The Dog, I mentioned, follows him for the last 10 years of his life. Hmm. And he did not receive any compensation for doing the documentary. Hmm. Well, that's typical, isn't it? I think so. But uh, again, he just seems to get off on the notoriety more than making any type of money out of it. For the remainder of our fact-checking discussion, we have an interesting opportunity to talk about the veracity of the truth as seen by the subject himself, John Wodowitz. And we have this because while serving time, Wodowitz wrote a lengthy letter to the New York Times detailing what he saw as being true and false in the film. He claims that only 30% of the movie is true, and he takes issue with the amount of money he received from Warner Brothers at the time. The letter was never published by the Times. But we also have the response from the Times to Wodowitz, and it will probably shed some light on why. Here is it's also fucking weird. Here is what the New York Times wrote. It's so public, right? Yeah. <laughs> we're not going to publish your letter, but we're going to respond to it. <laughs> they sent him a Dear John letter. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. John S. Wodowitz, P.O. Box 1000, Federal Penitentiary, Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. Dear John, I'm very sorry to say no to this after all our correspondence, but this article just won't work for us. The problem is... I just don't believe you have profoundly come to grips with the motives for your crime and the complex relationship between art and reality in this instance. Sincerely, William A. Channon, Arts and Leisure Editor, New York Times. Wow. Huh. Wodowitz had taken issue with a few things in the movie. The overall comical tone or farcical, as Don mm-hmm. had said. The lack of explanation about why he committed the robbery, which we now know. That but he, it was funny. I mean, not ha-ha funny, but it was absurd. They go in there, they have no plan, and they're admonished by the head teller. I mean, that's that's funny. It's absurd. They are, but what is referenced in the film but not really detailed is the whole reason they got there at that time is because that's when they said the money would, were told the money would be there. And the pickup, it's said in the film, right. the pickup happened at 11. Right. So it was always a plan that the money would be there, whether it be because of the mob or this mystery person at the bar who told Wodowitz to go steal from this branch. I, I lean more towards the mob as being the way it went down. I do not see some Chase Bank executive in a gay bar saying, hey, you know what you should do? You should go rob this branch. Although maybe he was just saying it to be funny because <laughs> John seems like the kind of guy who would yes. just... One of those suggestions. Yeah. Hey, oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. A drunken suggestion at the end of the bar and someone <laughs> runs with it because he seems like the kind of guy who would run with it. Yeah. Wodowitz also took exception to the presentation of him speaking to his mother in the street. He took exception to the depiction of his wife, Carmen. 
He refers to the actress who plays her as, quote, an ugly, greasy actress with a big mouth. What Wodowitz calls the most egregious liberty is when the movie shows Sonny making a deal with the FBI for Sal. Wodowitz states that this just isn't true. And it should be prefaced here that Wodowitz demanded that the prison he was being held in show Dog Day Afternoon to the inmates. Oh, and did that happen? That did happen. What? What? (laughs) That did happen. They held a showing for the inmates at this correctional facility in Pennsylvania. The good old days. (laughs) Oh, my God. And Wodowitz claims that when the prisoners saw this, and this was Wodowitz's first time seeing the film as well, many of the prisoners were upset about the portrayal of him handing over Sal to the FBI. Oh, yeah. Some, however, believed it or just used it it as an excuse to beat up on Wojewitz. Wodowitz also heaped praise on the film for Pacino's performance. He claimed his characterization was flawless. He also praised Chris Sarandon's portrayal of Liz. He felt the real-life Liz would have said and done those things in the exact same way if there had been a phone conversation between the two in real life. And... Now it's time to go ahead and give our scores for Truth versus Fiction for Dog Day Afternoon. We all gave a solid four for entertainment. What do you think the letter grade of A through F should be for Dog Day Afternoon for Truthfulness? I'm going in the B range. Yeah, a soft B. Minus E? Yeah. It's B minus E. I go for a B as well. I think it gives... A sense of truth. Mm-hmm. We're not, but not what, a sense of fact. Yeah, what we, <laughs> what we look for in fiction is not so much reality, but an epiphany of truth. Yeah, yeah, and there were aspects in there that played very much to real life. In fact, one of the tellers said these guys were just kids; they were really young in real life. And the fact is, she said, if these guys were at my apartment on a Saturday night, it would have been a lot of fun. <laughs> because apparently the tellers just relaxed and they were getting along with the guys, hmm. is what was happening. Hmm. But yeah, a B sounds like it's good. Now, before we wrap up, I want to mention there are two artistic works that have come out of this robbery, both of which involve the collaboration with John Wodowitz. The first is the documentary, The Dog, that I mentioned, where he details his life and circumstances that led to the robbery. And it's really a fascinating study of life in New York in the 1970s. The second is an art exhibit installation by Pierre Hugue, a French, I I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, H-U-Y-G-H-E. H-U-Y? H-U-Y... H-E-Y? H-U-Y-G-H-E. Who is I don't know how to say that. Pierre, a French multimedia artist, his work is titled The Third Memory and explores the intersection between memory and presentation by placing Wodowitz on a set of the original bank. As he directs actors playing tellers and police officers on what to do. So Wojewitz is on a mock-up of the Manhattan Chase Bank in Brooklyn telling tellers and police officers what to do based on his recollection of the real-life events that took place. And what the artist does is he puts this footage side-by-side 
with footage from Dog Day Afternoon. And what he finds is that Wojewicz's recollection is more of the film Mm -hmm. than it is of what took place in real life. So really, really interesting piece of art there. So any final thoughts on Dog Day Afternoon? No, I want to read you something I said, though, because I misspoke. On what section? Um, So we were talking about uh, Leon, Liz. When you're looking at the film and you're talking about things like sex changes and mental hospitals, you can see the change from then to now of how those things are framed Mm -hmm. and how much stigma there was even when you had access to surgery because now you aren't admitted to a mental hospital. Mm Mm-hmm. You are admitted to an inpatient psychiatric unit so you can get psychiatric care. You don't get sex change operation because that's somehow implying that there needs to be a change. You're getting gender confirming surgery, which is covered by insurances, at least until the election and the new Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And that makes a huge difference because even when you're allowed to pursue a surgery that you feel, you know, validates you and, and is appropriate to your to you, you're being stigmatized in just the way it's being framed. Yeah. Because that, that admission back then was part of what allowed you to get a sex change operation. You had to show what is now referred to as gender dysphoria. Mm-hmm. You had to show that you had such profound mental illness attached to not being able to access your sex change operation that this was necessary. And that's not my area of expertise, but I I do know that you still have to go through a pretty significant mental health process in order to get approval for that. Well, and this was the real events in the movie came out at a time when homosexuality was in the DSM. As a disorder, yep. But post-traumatic stress was not. And and that's another element into the story is we didn't even talk about the post-traumatic stress element. I was going to say, it was really interesting. I was thinking of how prevalent Vietnam was, especially 66, 67, 68, when it really starts to get on the American public's mind. And then you have the generation of soldiers who come back from the fighting in Vietnam in the 70s. I was thinking if that's informing their experiences, I was thinking of just of Afghanistan and Iraq. Mm -hmm. And I mean, those wars have been erased from American history. Nobody remembers that we young people. It's like they're, but you have a, you're going to have a whole generation or you already do have Mm -hmm. a whole generation formed with those, you know, different, obviously different place, different circumstances, but still like many of those same traumas or similar traumas. And it's, it just, it just sparked an interesting thought that history repeats itself once again. Yes, right? it does. It goes in cycles. Yes, it does. Or American history. Yeah. But no, Dog Day Afternoon, there's a whole lot that goes into this beyond just the robbery itself. The gay liberation aspect, PTSD, um, Stockholm Syndrome, I guess you could pull into there as well with the bank robbers and... Mm. No, you don't think so? No, no. That's a whole process when you start to align with your captors. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not what was doesn't take place in 12 hours? No. Okay. No. <laughs> okay. Well, hey, John, thank you thank for you. doing this. Don, thank you. Thank you.
That wraps up another episode of Biopics Mostly Suck. If you liked it, please subscribe using your favorite podcasting platform. We are literally everywhere, but not Spreaker. Oh God, not Spreaker. You can find all of the sources we use to build this episode at Biopics Mostly Suck slash Dog Day Afternoon. I usually throw in some other goodies on the episode page like videos or pictures. And for Dog Day Afternoon, I have a news report from that day from ABC National News with Harry Reasoner of 60 Minutes fame as the anchorman. Please note the dated reporting as John Wodowitz is referred to as, quote, an admitted homosexual. Speaking of Little John, I found the video from the art installation by Pierre Hughie that I talked about in the episode. It is a chilling piece of film, as Wodowitz directs actors portraying bank tellers, security guards, the police, and his dead partner, Sal. He alternates between being matter-of-fact, self-aggrandizing, and self-congratulatory. He was truly a legend in his own mind, who did not have the ability to comprehend the harm he brought to innocent people. I want to thank John and Don for talking about Dog Day Afternoon. You can find John Helix on Facebook at John Helix Official. You can find his music in most places where you go to get your music. How are we doing with this project? Go like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the handle of at Mostly Suck. Or send us your feedback through our website, biopicsmostlysuck.com. And you can recommend which movies you would like us to use for an episode. And we will share the true story behind that movie based on a true story. Take care, everyone.